This morning we want to jump into looking at the, the life of Christ, or the death of Christ rather, and the time on the cross. And today is Palm Sunday and we celebrate the, the entrance into Jerusalem as, the, as Jesus is coming and, and many of the people are coming for the Passover feast. And we have a, a grand entrance into Jerusalem where, where many of them are recognizing in their way that this is the Messiah. They didn't understand what that meant fully. They were looking for a different kind of Messiah, but we see the palm branches and the yells of Hosanna and the pro- proclamations that the Messiah is here. And throughout the week, that, that really is the beginning of Passion Week. And throughout the week, various events happened. We have the cleansing of the temple. And, and we move to Thursday and we see the, the celebration of the Passover. And, and we see that night the betrayal of Christ. As Christ knelt in the garden, and we talked about that earlier this year, and said, not my will, but yours be done. And that led, that was one step in a sequence of events that were happening that weekend that led to Christ's death on the cross. And that night, He was taken. And He was tried. He was lied about. He was spit on. He was mocked. He was beaten. He had a crown of thorns that was shoved onto his head to a point that he was no longer even able to carry the crossbar of his cross and had to have help the next morning. And we move to, to Friday morning and that's where we want to spend some time today and actually and next week because then as, as the Jewish leaders had falsely accused him and they were the accusers and the Roman soldiers now are the executioners and, and make no mistake, they were very, very good at what they did. And they were very good at inflicting pain and they were very good at executing those that had been convicted. And on that Friday morning, we finally get to the site. Golgotha. The skull. In Latin, Calvario, which is where we get Calvary from. And they come to the site, which was either west of Jerusalem, possibly north of Jerusalem, on a major road, because they believed that your crucifixions were to be deterrents. And so you wanted to do those on as major of a street as you could, or road as you could, so as many people could see. Some to mock, some just to learn. We get to that point. And they make a public spectacle of our Lord and Savior. And it's painful to read what happened and it's painful some of the movies that we've seen what happened because as we've been studying the life of Christ, our love for Christ is growing and our realization that this is our Lord and our Savior and our Master. And now we come to a point where He is being tortured and executed. And they nail Him to the crossbar, nail Him to the cross, and lift Him up to suffer and to die. Not just to die, but to suffer and to die. And as He hung there, the central point of the entire Bible, the central point of all of history, as He hung there, He spoke. He spoke. And we have seven recorded statements that Jesus made as He was hanging on the cross. And, and it's, it's interesting how so many times when we're under pressure and things are crashing in, it distills 
all of the superfluous things to the vital, doesn't it? It distills things down to the vital. And when we see Christ speaking on the cross, we are hearing the vital. We are hearing what His heart is and why He's there. And so this week and next week, we want to look at those. This week, we'll look at the first three, which happened in the first three hours of the crucifixion from about 9 a.m. to 12 to noon. We have the first three statements that we'll look at today. And then we have three hours of darkness where we have no recorded statements. And then after that, next week we'll look at the final four as the work is finished and the work is done. As we do this, we'll be jumping around to different Gospels, actually. Because no one Gospel records all seven, but by looking at the the four accounts, we can piece together all seven statements and put them in an order that they probably were spoken in. And so we come to the first statement. A little after 9 a.m. As Christ hangs there. Turn with me to Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Luke 23, verse 32. We're not going to spend a lot of time on some of the other details in this series, but focus in on the actual words of Christ and some of the events that are pertinent to those words. But Luke chapter 23, verse 32. And the first statement we see is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we see pure grace. Pure grace. Luke chapter 23. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. It's interesting, we don't see the disciples arguing at this point over who will be on his right hand. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as he hung there, the innocent in between two guilty, one on his left and one on his right. He says, Father, forgive them. The very first word, Father. It's a term of endearment towards His heavenly Father. Toward God the Father. And it's interesting that the first phrase starts with Father and the last phrase also includes Father. Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And we see a trust and we see a love that Jesus had in God the Father. And it's a window into the Trinity. It's a window into their love, into the trust, into the communion. Into a, a Trinity that we can never adequately explain but we can boggle our minds trying to think about in a good way. But to his father, now he he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And this is a prayer. And and his first words as he hangs there is a prayer. And that that just starts by blowing my mind. Because quite frankly, if I had gone through what he had been, been through and with any of us had, and we were nailed to a cross and finally dropped into place and we are in agonizing pain... I'm not sure my, my first words would be to pray for their forgiveness. 
Oh, I might be praying for them. I might be praying for some fire and brimstone and lightning and maybe the, the earth to open up and swallow some people. But to pray for forgiveness. It's amazing. And we get a, a, an insight into who our Savior is. A couple of Roman philosophers, first Seneca, they were talking about the crucifixion. And he said that all people, when being crucified and nailed to the cross, they cursed the day they were born. Another Roman philosopher, Cicero, said that the cursing was so violent and wicked that the soldiers often cut out the tongues of the men who were being crucified because their language was so filled with pain, rage, and hatred. And so that is the context that the soldiers hang Christ on the cross and they hear Father and they hear Him start to speak and they're like, here we go. Get the knife out. And, and, and He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that had to just, just go right to their, their hearts, to their heads, and just blow them away. Because this was no ordinary man. This was God. And He never swayed from that. And never fell. And never faltered. In the midst of His own excruciating suffering, the heart of Jesus was focused on forgiving others rather than on His own pain. And we see in this statement an incredible picture of His love and His grace. And this is an undeserved love and an undeserved grace. These men were crucifying Him. And it brings to mind Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because it's the same grace that allows us to sit here today. Amen? It's the same grace that allows us to enter into the kingdom. The grace that Jesus had when He looked down at those that were killing Him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiving is a letting go. A releasing. A letting go of the bitterness. A letting go of the anger. And I, I can't comprehend how He could even do this. Except for divine love and divine grace. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The them there is, is the people that, that Jesus is looking at. It includes both the Jewish accusers that are mocking, that are at the cross still mocking, it includes the Roman soldiers who are following orders. And Jesus recognizes that they have no idea what they've just done. That they have no idea that this is the Messiah, the God of the universe in human form. And they have nailed Him to a tree as a common criminal. The Roman soldiers following orders. The Jewish leaders protecting their own self-interests and not realizing. But that ignorance did not excuse the sin and thus the need for forgiveness. In the months prior to this, His disciples had heard Jesus teach. 
And they had heard him say things that they didn't understand, like, but I say to all you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And they heard it months before, and they saw it on the cross. Because Jesus was a man of integrity, a consistent man, a perfect man. This phrase also is, is a reference to Isaiah 53:12, and one of the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And I love seeing how prophecies are fulfilled in Christ, because it reminds us of faith and it reminds us of God's work and His plan throughout all of history. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Literally, he prays for the transgressors. What a picture of his grace. Down in your notes, I just have a couple of bullet points and on, on each of the, the words of Christ, trying to bring it home. And, and the first thing is, as we look at, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Attempt to think about the depth of His grace and love towards us. Attempt to think about the depth of His grace and love towards us. And I'm very intentional with the word attempt. And what I don't mean here is, oh, let's make a half-hearted, scattered attempt. You know, sometimes attempt can mean that, right? Oh, I tried. I'm done. But what I mean by that is His grace and His love, how much grace He has given you, how much grace He has given me, is, is so great that there is no way I can get it. There's no way I can comprehend it. And so I should struggle with it and attempt to, to just dwell on it. Say, wow! And these words remind us of that. Because if he can look at those that just hammered the nails in, he offers that same grace and that same love to you and I. What a picture. In Ephesians 1, verse 7, we read, In, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Not according to some small measure of His grace or some weak and wimpy grace, but the riches of His grace that we cannot begin to comprehend. But we should try. We should try until our head hurts. Because as we focus on His work, we see the depth of His love. And we appreciate it and we appreciate the depth of His grace. And if we're to be touched by His words on the cross, we need to attempt to understand the depth of a love and a grace that could ask for forgiveness of people that were not repentant, of people that were inflicting excruciating pain. Second way to think about this as we 
apply Christ's death and His work on the cross to our lives is we need to funnel that grace and love toward others. Funnel that grace and love toward others. The question that I was thinking about this week is, is, am I a conduit or am I a sinkhole? Am I a conduit or am I a sinkhole? Now, some of this comes from my experience in my backyard the last few weeks. It's amazing the theological principles you can get as you're trying to kill gophers. And, and I have some holes in the backyard that, that I put water down, and I can put water down for days on end, and they will never fill up. And I think Anaheim should write me a thank you note for refilling their water supply. Because it just goes and it goes and it goes. And it's a sinkhole. And, and if on one hand we just look at God's grace and we look at His love and we just, and that's all we do is look at it and apply it to ourselves, it's just a sinkhole that does nothing. And that's not His purpose for grace and love. His purpose for giving us grace and love is so that we will fulfill His purpose. Then I have other holes that aren't connected to the, the underground water supply of California. And um, those, you, you put water in, and within five minutes, water's bursting up out of all these other holes. Not for the squeamish, but along with little gophers. Um, <laughs> and, and in that case, those tunnels have become conduits of that water, right? And they're bringing it to other places, and it's effective. And, and so when I think of God's grace and love, am I a conduit or am I a sinkhole? Because God doesn't want sinkholes. He has saved us to save. To be conduits. Beautiful picture of this is Acts chapter 7. And Stephen is being stoned. Because we might come to this passage and say, well, that was Jesus, Pastor Ron. Jesus can do more than I can. And we get to Acts chapter 7 and Stephen is being stoned and he's at the verge of death. Verse 59, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Stephen was so in tune with God's grace and his forgiveness that he was able to channel that. Pure grace, pure love, and Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it makes me wonder, how do we do with this? What grudges do we hold on to? What offenses do we keep in the top of our mind, especially in a, in a a family church where we all know each other and we're rubbing shoulders and, and annoying each other and, and, and everything else. What do we hold on to? Because the question that I, I was hit with this week is really, is, is any of those, are any of those offenses worse than what the soldiers did to Christ? Because I haven't seen too many of you nailing each other to a cross recently. And if I'm following the example of Christ... And if I believe Philippians 2.5 when it says, let the same mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, then can I forgive? And can I look past? And can I let go of the things that make me bitter? And the things that annoy me? The things that frustrate me? 
Because God has called us to be people of His grace and people of His love. Just as we end the first statement, this is hard. And God is always humbling. And I'm driving here this morning. And I have my son in the car. And we're driving along down Ninth Street. And this car behind me is, is just right on my tail. About to hit me. They try to go around me on the shoulder and almost hit me then. And, and I'm getting angry. Because I'm going the speed limit, which is annoying for some, I know. But, but I'm going the speed limit down Ninth Street. And, and inside, we finally get to Lampson. And, and I'm just, inside, I'm steaming. And then I'm thinking about the first point of my sermon. <laughs> Stop it, God! Because tailgating is really quite a small thing compared to what Jesus went through. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What an amazing God. We move on to the second statement on the cross. The first, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The second is also recorded in Luke chapter 23 in the next phrase when Christ says, Truly I say to you today, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And I'd like to pick it up at verse verse 35 actually and get a little bit of, of leading up to this. If I can find it in the small print. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. We get to verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. I love that phrase. Railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, the other criminal, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he turns to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, being Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When we think about the second phrase of Christ, we see unexpected salvation and hope. Unexpected salvation and hope. And in the midst of Christ hanging on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of all believers... We see the camera zoom in to the scene of Christ and zoom into one soul and one life. And that life finding Christ and finding faith in Christ and finding hope of an eternity with Christ. As this one criminal recognized who Jesus was and expressed a plea for salvation. And we see Jesus in this statement today, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, pouring out His grace, pouring out His assurance, pouring out His salvation, pouring out His forgiveness. 
We talked a little bit about this text last year at Easter. But we see in the thief three things that he does. The first is he sees his sin. He sees his sin. We're here justly. We've done something wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. The second thing is he sees the punishment as just. Because he realizes that he's sinned, and he realizes that there's a consequence for that sin, and death is the consequence, and it's just. And finally, he puts himself at the mercy and grace of Jesus. He puts himself at the mercy of grace and grace of Jesus. And what we see is the gospel. We see the, the essentials of the gospel. I am a sinner. I can do nothing about it on my own. I deserve death. But by the mercy and grace of Jesus dying for my sins in my place, I can have eternity with Christ. And it's beautiful. It's amazing. Whenever we see the gospel, we should just light up. A couple of things about that phrase. Compare it with what the thief was asking. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief in his request says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the thief is asking for something far off, something in the future, something that didn't have much hope. And Jesus' answer was, today. Today. You have hope now. You're going to be with me in paradise today. The second thing, the thief is, is really just asking to be remembered and, and, and not asking for much. But Jesus' answer is, today you will be with me. And don't miss those phrases. We, we jump to the paradise, but, but the first part, you will be with me. Because what Jesus is promising here is a presence. A presence. The word for paradise was a Persian word that often mean a garden, meant a garden. And sometimes a walled royal garden. And for someone to come into that garden would mean you came in and you walked with the king through his garden. Isn't that an incredible picture of what it means to spend eternity with Christ? We come into his garden, his paradise. And it's not just about getting everything we want and a whole, whole wall of Dr. Pepper and, and the Dodger game on a full screen. That's not heaven. It'd be really nice here. <laughs> but that's not heaven. What is heaven? To be with Him. To be with Him. And that's the promise. The word for paradise there was also used of the Garden of Eden and used of the coming new heavens and the new earth. So it represents a perfect communion with Christ. And so Jesus here offers him so much more than he was asking. So much more. And isn't that true? Isn't that true when we ask of Christ? He has so much to offer, so much more to offer, if we will come to him, submit to him. And the promise to this thief is today, immediately, you will be with me. Paul says, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 
and there is an immediate presence. Jesus is offering hope in the future because of a presence today. He's offering hope in the future because of a presence today. And He offers us the same thing when we come to Him and when we, when we put ourselves at His mercy and in faith accept Him, that presence starts immediately. For every one of you that have accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you now and His presence is with you now. And walking through every situation you deal with now and confirming the hope of eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. That's exciting, isn't it? And so a phrase, today you will be with me in paradise, is a phrase that should make our eyes light up. And on the cross, as He is buying and purchasing the ability to give us redemption, to bring us into that paradise, He offers it to the thief next to Him. One side note, Jesus is only addressing one of the thieves. He is only addressing the thief that turned to him in faith. Because he offers nothing to the thief that will not turn to him. And that thief will die and spend eternity in hell away from Christ. And we must not confuse his, his, his grace and His love and His wanting of all men to come to Christ with that all men will. Because only those that come in faith to Jesus Christ is the offer of paradise. Third phrase. In the few minutes we have left. Turn over to John 19, verse 26. John 19, verse 26. This is all happening between 9 and 12 in the morning. And they've divided up his garments now. They've tried to give him some some drink to soothe the pain and he doesn't take it at this point. Mocking is still happening. And we see another verse and we've looked at these verses on a Mother's Day at one point. But in John chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. And understand what is happening here. Jesus is still on the cross. He is still in complete agony that we can never even understand. And He looks down and He cares about the needs of His mom. He looks beyond Himself. And and you could argue, you know what, I I really think dying and and being tortured, that might be a little worse than than whether or not one of Jesus' brothers is going to take care of His mom. But it wasn't to Jesus. Because to Jesus, it wasn't about His needs. It wasn't about what He was going through. It was about caring, caring for those that He loved. And it was His responsibility as the oldest son to take care of His mom. 
We don't know where, there's, where his brothers are at this point. In John chapter 7, we know that they weren't believers probably at this point. And so he takes the Apostle John and says, John, take care of Mom. Mom, this is now your son. You're taken care of. Mary is probably in her early 50s, probably widowed at this point, otherwise there wouldn't be a need for this. And she's at the cross watching her son go through the most painful death imaginable. And I know in talking to parents and administering to people, the thing as a parent you never want to do is outlive your child, right? And Mary is living it. Mary is living it. And so she is in agony of the heart, worried about her future. And Jesus says, dear woman, your woman. And he met her needs. And so I think of selfless care. I think I have a bullet point for that in your notes. These words to me represent selfless care. And again, like the first, these just step should step on our toes until we scream. Because it makes us look inside and say, if this is the Jesus that we are following, that we are disciples of, that we are called to imitate, how do we do it selfless care? How do I do it selfless care? Or am, am I sometimes so in, enveloped in my own issues and my own pain and my own struggles that I forget that every person is going through things? And that every person has a story. I think I have three bullet points there for just application of that. The first is don't expect others to be reaching out to you in the way you expect. Let me explain that one. Don't expect others to reach out to you in the way you expect. Lots of expects there, right? Sometimes we can come to, a, a, to church and to family gatherings and we have certain expectations for how people should treat us. How people should greet us, whether people should, should find out about our needs and what's going on. What I'm saying and suggesting is throw all that out the window. Throw all out that, all, all, all of that out the window because all of that is saying my needs need to come first. Jesus wasn't here saying, oh, people haven't given me enough to drink. Not enough of the disciples came to watch me die. Oh, no one stood up for me except Peter and he did it all wrong. He wasn't saying that. He was looking out and saying, you have a need, let me care. And so many times, I think we need to be a whole lot less sensitive about this. And sometimes a simple hi from a brother and sister in Christ might be all that they can manage. Because their heart is in such pain. And we come to church on Sunday, and don't we all sort of put on faces? Everything's great. We smile. We were talking about this in the elder meeting yesterday. You know, do we ever drive up and we're yelling and we're mad and we're angry and the door opens and we're like, hi. How are you? I'm fine. And we don't know what each other is going through. 
as a pastor, I get to hear your stories. And I relish the opportunity to care and to love, and the, the, the elders do as well. When we get those prayer requests, we pray for you. And we put them on our prayer lists. And I know that God is doing so much at Village and Satan is attacking so much. And family by family, there are struggles and there are trials that, that, like I have never seen before. And it boggles my mind. And it's a call for us to come together and care and to pray and to love each other. So the second point I have there is look for each other's story. Let's get past our own stories. Let's get past what's going on in our own lives and ask what's going on in your life. And that is so difficult to do when we are hurting ourselves. But the amazing thing is, as we do that, then God's grace, as, as we let God's grace and love be flow through us, as we let ourselves be a conduit, it affects us too. And finally, reach past your hurts and you end up dealing better with your stuff. And so we see a, a perfect selfless care by Christ. A care that He offers every one of you. It's interesting, in the three words that we saw today, we again, we see the Gospel. In the first, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We see unrepentant sinners that are in desperate needs of God's grace. And Jesus extends that to them. The second, today you will be with me in paradise, we see in faith then a response to that grace and God's salvation come pouring out. And then in the third, Mom, this is your son. Son, John, take care of Mom. We see God's care coming to His children. God's love coming to His children. I'd like to end by showing just a short video. And I need to set it up because I need to explain it because it's a very emotional video. But that's not why I'm using it. And I hesitate to use it because of that. But as Susie and I were talking this week and we were praying for so many of the families in our church and prayer tree requests come in and we're praying for Rosemary, Frank, and we're praying for so many different situations. Susie and I were just talking about the imagery of walking into church and looking around and seeing a story behind every person. What is this person going through, good or bad? What is this person going through, good or bad? What is this person going through, good or bad? And we were talking about that that's what, what I wanted to communicate as we come to John take care of mom. Is getting to a point as a church body where we, we realize that behind all those masks are hurts and joys and we should cry with each other and we should would laugh with each other and have joy with each other. But it starts by seeing each other as people with stories. Yesterday morning, one of the blogs I, I was reading posted a, a video that did just that. And I, and I watched it and I just started crying. And I'll warn you of that now. Because it was the point that I wanted to make, but it did it visually like I couldn't describe it. And so understand, it's, it's not, I don't show it to be an emotional plea, but to try to train ourselves to look at each other differently. It's also not an advertisement. It is a Chick-fil-A video. <laughs> it's one of their training videos. The, the owners are, are Christians there, 
and it's one of their training videos to try to get their employees to start to see their customers as not as customers, but as people with stories. So I'd like to show it and just see how it prompts our hearts. And I watched that so convicted. Am I like Christ where I can say, John, take care of mom. She has a need. I urge you to be the cow. <laughs> cow didn't have a caption. What did the cow do? The cow gave the hug. Cow gave the hug. Village family, we are a family. And there's so much happening in our lives. And we need God's grace, but we need each other more than ever. This Palm Sunday, may we be the cow. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I come to your words on the cross, and Lord, they stomp on my toes. I don't understand how you could say those at that time, and I see how short I fall of being able to say those myself. Lord, may I be like you. May we be like you. May we offer forgiveness. May we tell of your salvation. May we genuinely care for each other. In your name, amen.